The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. So today we will be examining two new DC Comics young adult novels, The Oracle Code and Shadow of the Batgirl. Joining us today are two very special guests, best-selling authors Sarah Kuhn and Marika Nykamp. Thank you guys so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Can you please tell our audience a little more about yourself, starting with you, Sarah? Yes, uh, I am a writer. I wrote the series Heroin Complex, which is a series of novels about Asian American superheroines. And I've also written assorted short fiction and comics. And Shadow of the Batgirl is my newest book with artist Nicole Gu. And it's about Cassandra Kane, who is the Asian-American Batgirl, and kind of follows her as she escapes her supervillain father and tries to make a new life for herself. And it's absolutely amazing. It had me in tears on multiple occasions. It's written exceptionally well and also really, really well illustrated. So thank you so much, Sarah, for creating such a beautiful work. Thank you. So, and Marika, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also a writer. Uh, I wrote This Is Where It Ends, uh, Before I Let Go, and edited the YA anthology Unbroken 13 Stories Starring Disabled Teens. I, I'm disabled myself, so disability representation is close to my heart, and it's one of the things I'm honestly proudest of in the Oracle Code, which is a story about Barbara Gordon as a teen, when she's out one night hacking with her best friend, ends up in a like, slightly awkward situation, trying to help her father, ends up being shot and has to use a wheelchair. And most of the story is about her trying to find her wheels and figure out who she is now that everything's changed, figure out a way back to who she was before everything changed. Wow, that is definitely not the best pitch I've ever given of this book, but in my defense, it's 9 p.m. here, so <laughs> I'm slightly tired. Thank um, you so much for joining us this late in the evening. No, absolutely. I should also add the art of the book is by the exceptionally talented Manuel Pretano, who did a fantastic job with all the characters and all the various wheelchairs in the book. <laughs> The art was amazing in both of them. Absolutely. The art was incredible. The stories were incredible. And I have to say, as a person with disability myself, I am so grateful to you for writing this graphic novel. It had so much heart and soul, and it shows the exceptional strength that people with disabilities have. So just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for creating this. It was absolutely my pleasure. I think it's wonderful that both of these books 
have to do with representation. You guys did an amazing job of capturing the need for representation. What I would really like to know right now is, can you briefly tell about how you got involved with these books and writing them and what drew you to the specific stories? Starting with you, Marika. Um, so I I honestly got involved because I got a phone call late one night from my agents asking me if I would consider writing a graphic novel for DC. I was like, yes, of course I would consider that. And Barbara Gordon was one of the first characters that they suggested and also obviously the character that I meshed with most personally because I was a disabled hacker in my <laughs> teens. Maybe not quite to the extent that Babs is, but there was definitely some coding going on for a long time there. She was just a character that I felt a very strong personal connection to. And I really wanted to tell a story in which disability played a big part. I didn't want to tell a story where she got to be a disabled but also a superhero. I wanted to tell a story where she got to be disabled and a hero because I don't think the two necessarily exclude each other. So for me, it was always going to be about disability, about figuring out who you are and figuring out where your strengths are. And this is honestly my just writing part of my own background as a teen, including the whole living in a rehabilitation center, which I also did when I was 14, so slightly younger than Babs. It just so happened that my stay at rehabilitation center didn't include patients going missing and scary sounds from the walls. So <laughs> that's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So how about you, Sarah? Yeah, I also got, I think, a phone call or email from my agents saying that DC was looking for pitches for their new YA line. And they had sent along a list of characters and Batgirl was on the list of characters. And my agent actually asked because she knows that I love Cassandra Kane does this mean any Batgirl or is it just Barbara Gordon? And they said it could be, the pitch could be anything, whatever kind of inspires the most creativity. Mm -hmm. So I pitched Cassandra and I've loved that character for a very long time. I mean, obviously I'm Asian. I love her because she's an Asian Batgirl, but mm -hmm. I also love her story for a lot of other reasons. And I was really happy that they were open to that. And to be honest, I, I kept thinking that it was going to get rejected. It just, didn't seem realistic to me that if they were doing a Batgirl book, it would be Batgirl Cassandra. Um, so I was very happy and very surprised when it kept moving on. And I think what I've always loved about Cassandra, besides the fact that she's the Asian Batgirl, is that she's someone who really has all the tools to be a supervillain. That's what she's been told her destiny is. That's what she's been trained for. That's kind of all she knows. And she makes a choice to be a hero instead. And I always thought that was very powerful. And certainly I thought a story about sort of being like learning how to open yourself up and learning that you actually do have choices in life would be powerful for an audience of younger readers. Absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. It, it always comes down to choice when you look at it. <laughs> and I love that about it. So in writing about Batgirl and Oracle, which 
can be interchangeable, really. You're you're both representing these iconic characters that are closely connected with one another, since Barbara Gordon is both Batgirl and Oracle at different times, and Cassandra Kane is Batgirl as well. Can you both talk about how you played homage to the previous iterations of Batgirl and how you crafted such unique stories for her? Um, yeah, should I? I'll, I'll start, I guess. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Give <laughs> me a little more time to think about this. I know, it's always a thing about a conference call, right? You're like, do I talk now? Do I talk now? <laughs> um, I, I can start pointing if you want, but I don't know if that would help. <laughs> I know, I appreciate the pointing. I think that was actually a big challenge for me because I was such a fan of the character and they kept kind of telling me, you know, you can push it a little bit. It doesn't have to be exactly what we know. This is kind of for new readers. It should really be introducing the character to people who don't know her. So we did kind of tell a modified version of her origin story. You know, Cassandra, if people don't know, is the character who has been basically raised without a language. She doesn't really know how to speak. She doesn't know how to read. She doesn't understand what a lot of words mean except for the commands that her father has given her. And the only language she really knows is body language because it helps her sort of anticipate what an opponent is going to do. So her father has basically made her into this living weapon. I still wanted to keep that. I wanted to sort of explore what that meant and what a character kind of coming out of those circumstances and those years of abuse, how she would interface with the world. And I also had always really connected with the relationship between Cassandra and Barbara Gordon in the comic books. I love seeing one female hero mentor another. I think there's kind of not enough of that shown in all the mediums we have superheroes in. So I definitely wanted to explore some aspect of that as well, just that mentorship between those those two characters. And I was really happy when DC also told me, you know, it can be kind of any version of Barbara Gordon. It can be the Oracle version. It can be, you know, she could still be Batgirl, but it's a secret. Like, it could sort of be any of those things. And I've always loved Oracle Babs, so I was really excited to get to write her as well. Obviously, it's a little bit of a different take on her. She's hiding out at the Gotham Library, uh, which was always kind of a fantasy of mine to get lost in the library so I could just read all the books and no one would bother me. There were just things like that that were like my fantasies that came into it. And then the thing that we added that I'm very proud of is it was very important to me that in addition to Barbara, Cassandra also have an Asian-American female mentor because certainly that has been very important in my life and I really wanted to show that that relationship with someone who's older than you, who has more life experience than you, who's genuinely trying to help you, who also looks like you is very important. So Nicole Gu, the artist, and I created Jackie who is a classic Asian auntie. She's always trying to feed you. She's always kind of giving you tough love, but there's real genuine love underneath. And of course, she dresses in very wild, clashing pattern outfits. So that was something we kind of added to the Cassandra story that I was really proud of. And also, I think we really tried to make it very much from her POV. She has had her own title. We have been in her head before. But I really wanted this story to be very much her telling it the way that she wants to, the way that she can, and for us to be very deeply in her perspective. Right, definitely. 
Have you had time to think about your answer there, Marika? <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's interesting because there's definitely things that Sarah is saying that I would be able to repeat almost one-on-one. Initially approaching this story, it felt like a bit of a search, figuring out like how to get from Oracle in the comics in main continuity to the Oracle that I wanted to introduce in this book. And, and there was definitely those moments too where I was like, oh, so you mean I can do pretty much anything with this character that's both an incredible responsibility and super exciting Mm -hmm. so one of the first things i decided was like well if that's the case she's going to get shot because of choices she makes and not to further a guy's story Mm -hmm. um because let's not do that um so i i want her to have like some kind of agency in that to have it be about barbara trying to figure out who she is she's still jim gordon's daughter she still wants to do right by the world in whatever way that she can she wants to take care of her father and i wanted to have that relationship there because it's one of the things i really love about their relationship in comics even though it depends a bit on which comics you read what their exact relationship is but I wanted to have that strong family bond there as a sort of starting point and as a way of kind of introducing Babs as this character who's super into puzzles and into figuring out Gotham and into finding her own place in this world and figuring out how she can be of help to the people around her and then basically just like take all of that away from her for a bit because that's the fun part of telling stories is torturing mm-hmm. your characters. <laughs> um, what I really wanted to do, and, and it's not something that necessarily really includes much of Gotham or the Bat Family or anything like that, but is to give her that journey from this is who I was, this is everything I lost, and how do I go back to being who I want to be now? And, and really giving her and like by extension giving myself a chance to recreate that origin story and that quest for figuring out who Oracle is. I wanted to do so in an environment where she got to see mentors too, where she got to see people with disabilities around her, people who shared her experiences, though they all come from different backgrounds, have different reasons to use crutches, to be in wheelchairs, she basically falls into this world where disability is the norm and it's everything around her and it allows her to both unlearn everything she thought she knew about disability and find a place for the anger and the grief that she carries with her now that she's in this situation but also have this like mentor relationship with the girls around her which then help her figure out herself again sort of figure out where her boundaries lie where her own agency still is having her in a rehabilitation center meant that she could be in a world where pretty much everyone is disabled and learn that it's just a normal way of being it's a different way of being but that doesn't make it lesser or bad or anything like that and i felt that that was very necessary for her to sort of grow towards becoming a version of Oracle. I mean, maybe not quite the Oracle that we know in comics, but then at the same time, one that is hopefully very much like her and is still my homage to that particular character. And I think that definitely came through. I love that idea of disability being the norm. And it really came through in your work. And I think that it 
it's something that will probably allow the readers to be more accepting toward their own disabilities if they're experiencing it and probably also gain an understanding as to what people with disabilities are going through. I think it had such a powerful juxtaposition of disability and the pain that Babs went through and then also this like newfound sense of strength and hope and I think that that came across in both of these books in terms of pain and then hope. To me that was one of the themes that I took away from both of these books. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. There might be a little bit of minor spoilers out there for you folks, so mm. just bear that in mind. We're, we're trying to keep it limited, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, this next question is for you. Cassandra Kane was, as you were mentioning, emotionally abused and brainwashed by her father, who trained her to become an assassin. Yet when she meets people that she becomes close to, such as Barbara Gordon and Jackie... Is it Yoniyama? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When she meets them, she initially becomes very timid as a mouse, um, earning her the nickname Tiny Mouse. Can you talk more about that? Yes, I think that the way I kind of saw her was that she had been in this very restricted environment where the only things she really knew were doing these drills with her father and all of his minions and kind of learning how to be this fighting machine and then going out on jobs and doing her assassin thing and basically killing people for mm -hmm. her father. So within those spheres, and especially since part of the abuse is that her father really limits who she has contact with. She does not have very much experience with human interaction. She doesn't really know how to talk to people, literally doesn't know how to talk to people. She doesn't know how to respond when they're giving her sort of a social cue that's something other than a thing that lets her get her next fight move ready. So that's kind of just organically how I imagine she would react to people after being in this environment for so long. And she's also coming off of this experience where she's been sent out on a job, she tried to do the kill as usual, and then something happens. I don't know if this is really a spoiler, it's in like the first few pages, but something happens where she does not complete the job and it kind of sends her into this spiral. It's never happened before, she doesn't know what to do. So she's also coming out of that experience and all of these new things all around her, I just thought naturally would make her sort of timid and a bit afraid and just not really knowing how to interact or what to do next. And I think especially like someone who has really only experienced cruelty as the norm, these characters are showing her kindness and she really doesn't know how to deal with that. That's something that she has to learn on her journey. Yeah. So Dr. Scarlett, can you please talk about what happens to people who might experience emotional abuse and the lack of social connections in childhood the way that Cassandra did? Sure. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because people who experience this level of emotional and it looks like possibly physical abuse and neglect the way that Cassandra did do in fact struggle with understanding their emotional experiences and like Cassandra might have a hard time receiving compassion and kindness from others because they might have learned that if someone is kind to them then they might want something or they're likely to hurt them. 
So it's pretty apparent that for Cassandra, for the longest time, she believes herself to not be worthwhile. She believes that she's someone that other people won't like or won't want to be around. And as she mentions, she might not believe that her past, which she calls her before, to ever go away. And the truth is, our past does stay with us. There are emotional scars that stay with us for a long time, in some cases forever. And hopefully some of us might be able to learn that not everyone will be as awful and hurtful as some of the perpetrators that some of us might have encountered. Yeah. So Marika, after Barbara, or Babs as she prefers to be called, arrives to the Arkham Center for Independence, she is initially withdrawn and distrusting and very irritable. Importantly, she has recently lost her ability to walk around and is confined to a wheelchair. Can you please talk about what she's going through here? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just start by saying that for most people, wheelchairs are a form of freedom. So confined by a wheelchair is not usually preferred language. So just as a as a starting point. But what Babs is struggling with is, I think, a few things. One, it's definitely that she's lost her ability to walk as a result of being shot. Let me give you a, a very tangible example. Um, when we start off the story, Babs is sitting on a rooftop, and that's one of her favorite places to be. She loves watching Gotham from way up high, and there's a line there, something along the lines of being very curious what it would be like to fly, because she loves observing the world from a distance. and. When she is using her wheelchair, she is suddenly a lot closer to the ground and she has this very different perspective of the world around her. And with that, everything changes. The way she interacts with the world, the way she sees herself, she honestly doesn't know who she is. In all of this happening, she's also lost her best friend. Mild spoiler, but he just stops talking to her because he doesn't know how to deal with any of this either. So she's very distrustful. She's very much still grieving everything that happens. And one of the ways that she's dealing with that, or not dealing, honestly, is by lashing out at the people around her because she feels hurt. She was always the one to solve puzzles. And as she tells her father, she is the puzzle now and she doesn't know how to solve it anymore. That's very powerful. And I, I wanted to say thank you for the clarification with my wording of being combined in a, a wheelchair as opposed to having the freedom. That's something that you really don't really realize, but it's quite amazing, and I, I appreciate that clarification. Absolutely. Dr. Scarlett, can you please talk about what people might experience after they go through changes like this and lose common abilities? Well, Marika did such a wonderful job of explaining it. I mean, it really is like a grief reaction. Not like, it is a grief reaction. A lot of people think grief only happens when a person dies, but grief can also happen when we go through some kind of a change. It could be a change in a relationship status or it could be a change in an ability, for example. A few years ago, I was working with active duty service members and a number of them had experienced life-changing injuries. And so one of the service members I was working with was injured in combat and was supposed to be in a wheelchair but was refusing. He made a personal choice to use walking sticks and would frequently re-injure himself um, because he was afraid of being in a wheelchair. That was something that was really painful for him and he expressed that to him 
that would mean that kind of like this journey was over and that he was admitting defeat. Um, that's what he initially said. And he blamed himself. He believed himself to be quote unquote weak and broken. And he started isolating from his friends and family and had a difficult time being around his son, his one-year-old son, whom he loved very much, but said that he couldn't run around with him. We actually talked about Barbara Gordon, and we talked about the Oracle. We talked about Gail Simone's version of Barbara Gordon when she's going through therapy and when she's struggling with trauma. And I wish these books were out then because then we could have talked about the Oracle Code. As we started talking about them, I think something clicked because he started looking up instead of down. He started being more engaged. And a few sessions later, he showed up in a wheelchair with a big smile on his face. And he said, you won't believe how fast I am in this thing. <laughs> and he was able to chase his son around. He was so excited. And very much like you said, Marika, it was freedom for him. I think that he had a preconceived notion about what being in a chair would mean, but it gave him the ability to be engaged with his friends and family. It was because of Batgirl and it was because as she was transitioning into Oracle and it was because of this very character that he was able to do that. And I'm so incredibly grateful to you for writing this because I can see the potential for there being many, many more people who are likely to reframe the way that they're thinking about their own disabilities because of that. Both of these books are so amazing with what they point out as far as what you're not used to. And this question is for both Sarah and Marika. Cassandra and Babs both struggle with getting close to others and initially appear to feel worse when their friends are being actually kind to them. Can you both talk about what these characters are going through? And we'll go ahead and start with you, Sarah. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before as far as Cassandra has never really known kindness. She doesn't know what that looks like. It's all very new and scary for her. And a lot of her journey is learning that the people who are being kind to her genuinely mean that. They're not trying to get something out of her. They aren't trying to trick her. They aren't like a secret enemy sent to assassinate her. They are actually just people who want to take care of her and be her friend. And that's kind of at the heart of her journey. That's what she's going through. But I think a lot of that initial distrust comes from the way she's been raised, the way she's been abused, the way that her trauma has sort of informed how she's now moving through this very unfamiliar world. And it was important for us to show that. And I think it was also important for us to show that the people in her life are being truly kind by also letting her know, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on with you. We don't know everything about your past, but we do love you unconditionally. And we will give you sort of the room you need to grieve and to process the trauma. And there's one thing that Jackie says to her that a lot of people have brought up to me that I really appreciate that has resonated with people where she keeps telling her it's okay to not be okay yeah. um, or it's okay to not be okay however we phrase that it was kind of clear that like it's not just telling her to get over it or to shove it down which is sometimes the favored Asian method of dealing with things but that she actually has the space to grieve and process and figure out a way of being in the world 
that is more comfortable for her. But that was kind of a lot of what was important to us with writing that journey was just showing that actually sometimes the kindest thing you can do is to sort of give someone space and tell them that it is okay to not just automatically be okay after going through so much and dealing with kind of a whole new life. And I think that really came through. I can see a lot of readers who might have experienced trauma in their life pointing to multiple panels in this book and saying, that's me. You know, Mm. I've been through that. Yeah, that's really nice to hear because we were definitely trying to get that across without being sort of preachy about it, but just like showing this person who is going through what is hopefully a realistic depiction of what that experience can be like. If I can just add to what Sarah saying, as someone who lives with PTSD, I definitely love that in Shadow of a Bad Girl so much. And I felt you did Thank such you. an amazing job in depicting that. So Thank yeah, you. I'm definitely one of those readers who resonated <laughs> with that too. <laughs> but yeah, for Babs, it's very much the same in the sense that she's dealing with the trauma of being shot, of losing her best friend and just distrusting everyone around her, sort of compounded by the fact that her therapist, but mostly her father too, are just trying to get her to a point where they place the responsibility of being better squarely on her mm-hmm. without any sort of acknowledgement that it is okay to be angry, it is okay to grieve, it is okay to sort of deal with all of this. And that's something that she struggles with a lot. And part of her is just waiting for people to disappear again, like her best friend did. So for her learning that people are there and are going to be there no matter what. That is a lesson that it takes a while to get through to her. And it's also learning that she deserves to have people there. And because she's struggling so much with this place where she's now mentally, I think part of her doesn't necessarily believe that at first. Like part of her probably gets why Ben left and probably would get it if other people left too. And getting to a point where she's like, no, these people are going to be here no matter what happens. And maybe that's okay. And maybe I'll be okay. It's just a massive part of her journey. On a more like meta level too, I really also wanted to allow her to be angry, to show her angry in the book because... I feel like most of the time, and and thankfully it's getting better, but most of the time when we see disabled people in books, in in media, they are supposed to be inspirational or kind or perfect little angels. And there's very little room for people to be angry. And I think that that I can speak to this from like a queer non-binary perspective too. I think that holds true for multiple marginalizations. I think Sarah would probably agree to that as well. There's very little room to be less than perfect and anger is often seen as not that acceptable. I wanted to give her the room to really go through all of those emotions and understand that she has a right to be angry. She should give herself the time she needs to get to a point where she can feel like herself again. And that doesn't have to be perfect. It can be ugly. That's perfectly okay. And it's understandable too if she doesn't trust everyone yet. She like ideally will come to a point where she does. I wanted to have that time to explore all the sides of grief and trauma. And like I said, when I started finding her wheels instead of finding her feet, she has to get to a point where she really can be Babs 
without having to follow what other people expect of her, but getting to that point intrinsically. I mean, healing yeah, has no I, time frame, right? <laughs> no, for sure, for yeah. sure. And I just wanted to say I do absolutely agree with that. I love what you said about just how a lot of times characters with any marginalization feel like they have to be inspirational or perfect or good role models or good examples or whatever it is you want to call it. I have absolutely felt that pressure in many ways. And I think one of the things that's really awesome about the DC Young Readers Blend in general and these two books is just that I feel like we really were given the chance to explore these characters as full humans and sort of the full, I guess, mess of what that means, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, the bad parts, the good parts, the parts that are actually a struggle. Those things have definitely been hard for me to, to pick sometimes because you do feel that pressure to kind of, you know, make characters who share your marginalizations, especially, I think, like these perfect role model angels that everybody will just love. And obviously that's not how life is. So I think it's actually quite empowering to be able to see these characters in the full mess of what life is and what processing trauma means and how through all of these processes we're definitely not perfect and there is a lot of anger and other very real emotions that sometimes we don't always get to depict. So I think that is something that's really nice about both of these books and about these the DC Young Readers line in general. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's so refreshing to see so much more diversity represented in your books and representation. It's very powerful. Sarah, in your introduction, you actually talk about the fact that you always thought of yourself as a sidekick. Yeah. And I mean, in this book, we see a wonderful representation of an Asian superhero, Cassandra Kane is Batgirl. Your book, your narrative is changing lives. What would oh. you want the readers of this book to take away from this? One of the things I've been saying a lot is I just want Asian American girls to feel like they could be Batgirl. I want them to feel like I can be the star of the story. I can be Batgirl. I can sort of possess this amazing mantle that has all this history attached to it. I want them to be able to hopefully be inspired by it and to just feel like they're worthy. I mean, I think I certainly in my life have had a hard time feeling worthy of things. And I think a lot of that is my own ingrained self-rejection, the things that I've internalized from our society that have made me feel like a sidekick. A lot of Cassandra's journey too is feeling like she is worthy of this mantle. She's not thinking, I could be Batgirl. She's thinking, I need to find Batgirl. I need to yeah. find the missing Batgirl, because Batgirl in our book has been missing for a few years, and nobody knows what happened to her. So initially, she's thinking, I need to find Batgirl to sort of save me from this supervillain who is my father. And I wanted to show the progression of how then she realizes she is worthy of this mantle and she has been the whole time and she can be the hero of this story. She doesn't need to find another one and she can actually in the end save herself. I think those are things that are really important for me for especially Asian American girls, little girls of color to really see that they can be the hero of their own story and they don't have to listen to whatever 
society is telling them that they have to be or that they can't be or that they're not worthy of. I just want them to see that and realize like, oh, I, I can be that too. I can absolutely be the main character in my own life, but also in stories that I see in different media. That was beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, likewise, Marika, your book demonstrates that people with physical disabilities are just as able to be superheroes as people without disabilities. It was the first book in which I have seen not just one hero with a disability, but multiple ones. Can you talk about these characters' journeys and what we as readers can take away from this important message? I honestly like wrote a book with the same idea of wanting to show disabled readers that they can be heroes too, that they don't have to end every book either healed or dead, which seems like not that high a bar. And yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> for Babs, it's not necessarily figuring out what she wants or who she can be, but realizing that she is still the same, like curious hacker, puzzle solver, inquisitive girl who has a nose for trouble and finds herself in the wrong place at the wrong time. The fact that she uses a wheelchair now doesn't change who she is. It changes how the world relates to her. And and that's not something I necessarily explored much in this book, though there's definitely a part of that too. But that says more about the outside world than it says about her. And one of the reasons why I wanted to include all of these characters, all of these disabled characters, is one, we flock together. That's just how that goes. (laughs) And two, I wanted to have that sense of normalizing disability, of showing all the various ways in which you can be disabled. And for me, it's an important part of my identity but it doesn't negatively affect my identity. It doesn't change who I am. It adds to who I am. And I wanted to have the opportunity to show that to And Manuel did such a great job in approaching that in the arts and making sure that we got the various types of wheelchairs, right? And the various types of crutches and other assistive devices, which I really appreciate it because it's, it's so important to just have that sense of realism and that that sense of good representation. I wanted to make disability as normal as possible and also make sure that it wasn't just seen as, to use Felissa Thompson's amazing hashtag, disability too white. Disability is something that affects all people of all genders, of all colors, and has to be reflected as such. Because if we're not doing that, if the only disabled people we show in media are white people, we're doing a disservice to many communities. It was just amazing to have the opportunity to include not the whole spectrum of disability, because that would be impossible, but have a healthy subsection of, look, these are all the ways in which you can be disabled and also still be a hero and also have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You can't see me, but I was tearing up. I can see you. I I was watching her tear up. (laughs) But I mean, these conversations are so important and these topics are so important to get out there. And this question is for all of you. What do you think is the most important thing for any trauma survivors to remember when coping with the repercussions of their traumatic experience? I'm just going to point a finger at Sarah. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's such a big question. I want to make sure I do it justice. For me, it goes back to what I was kind of saying before about it's 
okay to take the space for yourself and it's okay to not be okay. I think certainly that is something that I've had to learn in my own life, in my own dealings with mental health issues, in finally admitting that I actually did need regular therapy and it couldn't be just kind of like a one-off sort of situation or right before big life events or whatever it is, that that was something that I actually needed to deal with for the rest of my life and deal with in a meaningful way for the rest of my life. Prior to that, a lot of times my instinct, which was kind of hammered into me from the sort of traditional Asian American upbringing, was if there is something wrong, if you have a bad feeling, if you are dealing with something, you just need to kind of shove it down or get over it. And that there was sort of a timeline for both of those things. So for me, it's certainly been important to learn that, you know, there isn't actually a timeline for that, that it is something that you kind of have to interface with and deal with for as long as it takes, and that it's okay to sort of have bad feelings about it, because a lot of times what you're having bad feelings about is something bad that's happened or something that you're having to deal with. So to just know that it's okay to sort of have those feelings and process them and that you don't have to get over them right away, that's actually not a thing that happens. (laughs) I've talked a lot about like mental health, especially in Asian American communities, and there are very high suicide rates in our communities. And I think a lot of times it's because we haven't really been given the framework or the template for dealing with mental health and for knowing that's a thing that you actually have to work on and that sometimes there are feelings that you can't just shove down, you can't just get over really easily. That's not you know, really how it works. I just want people to know that it is okay to take that space for yourself. It is necessary and it is okay to have not good feelings sometimes. That's just part of being human and we all have to learn how to deal with that and process that in a way that works for us and the way that works for us might not be the way that works for someone else, but it's okay to sort of take the time and the space to figure that out. Definitely. Healing is personal. How about you, Marika? I'll definitely agree that therapy is amazing. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen many therapists in my life and will probably continue to do so because it's good to talk about things and occasionally have someone remind you that your brain doesn't always tell you the truth and Mm -hmm. your brain can be a really annoying thing sometimes. (laughs) Um, I would say that everything Sarah said and I think it's important to remember that you deserve to have people around you who trust you, who will listen to you, who will give you the space you need or the kick in the butt you need or whatever it is, but who are there for you and who will be there for you even when things get hard. I know it's easy to settle for less and it's easy to feel like you have to maybe let go of yourself a little bit to give space to the people around you, but you deserve that space for yourself too. And you deserve to have those people around you too. If you're lucky to be in a family where you can be supported, family can be friends, it can be found family, it can be created families in whatever way or shape or form. It also includes finding a therapist who gets you because for all that I just said, therapy is amazing. I also think it's important to find the right therapist and it's Mm. important to recognize that not everyone is a good fit. That can hold true on on many counts from just like way of looking at the world to 
being accepting of your identity, as I have mm-hmm. found as a non-binary person looking for therapists. Like I said, I think that trusting that you deserve to have good people around you is incredibly hard but incredibly important and i would also add things can look so so rough but even just making it to the next day is the only thing you need to do when you're in the midst of dealing with trauma and dealing with difficult times in life it can feel almost impossible to think about like half a year from now or next year or wherever but it can be possible to make it to tomorrow even that can feel so far off, but like just make it to tomorrow and then the day after just make it to tomorrow. And at some point it does get easier. There's actually an element of this in the Oracle code too, where Babs, when she gets to the rehabilitation center, starts off counting the days. And at some point she forgets to count the days. Like the days turn into day I should know my limits by now or mm-hmm. uh, day finally. Um, but like it, it doesn't, yeah, it, it's not so much a measure anymore of it's day 24 and I'm still doing this and it's still hard. At some point, the days hopefully get slightly easier. And it is so, so very worth it to hang on until you reach that point. Absolutely. And as both a trauma survivor and a therapist that specializes in trauma, I think that these books are going to be incredibly, incredibly helpful for people who've been through something traumatic, even if their experiences might be different from what these characters have encountered. I think that both of these books do a wonderful job in letting us see that we all go through a wide array of emotions when we're suffering and feelings are meant to be felt. That's why they're called feelings. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that there are no good or bad feelings, that all feelings are important and they let us know what our needs are. They allow us to see that we might need a certain level of support or compassion or understanding in that moment. And I think for anyone who is struggling, the most important thing is finding their own Justice League, finding their own sets of other superheroes who might also support them in that moment so that that person can recognize that they are the hero of their journey because our traumatic experiences might be our origin stories, but they don't get to determine the rest of our lives. That is our choice. And that's where we get to decide the way that we want to live out the rest of our lives and the kind of person that we want to be. Wow. This has been a very powerful episode. I'm just in awe of being a part of it, to be honest. We're going to have to go ahead and end this episode of Superhero Therapy. Would you mind telling our audience where they can find you, possibly on social media? Yeah, I'll go first. This is Sarah again. Um, I am most often on Twitter. It's just my name, Sarah Kuhn. And then sometimes I also post uh, pictures on Instagram, which is Sarah Kuhn's books because someone else took Sarah Kuhn. <laughs> And then my website is heroinecomplex.com. That's the name of my first uh, superhero novel, Heroin Complex. So those are the places people can probably find me most often. You can definitely find me on Twitter too. Unfortunately, way too often. (laughs) (laughs) I'm at Marike, M-A-R-I-E-K-E-Y-N. And that's also my Instagram handle. I post pictures on Instagram about twice a year. And then I forget about having an Instagram until like various months later. 
you can find me on my website as well, which is mariekenaikamp.com. And I'll spell that out as well, which is M-A-R-I-E-K-E-N-I-J-K-A-M-P.com. Thank you guys so much for being on our show. You guys were amazing guests and your books are awesome. Thank, Thank you, you both you. for joining us. So much for having us. <laughs> Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great day and remember that you are a superhero.